this panel's going to be, I think, a little bit different. We want it a little more interactive. Some of them have been, some of them haven't so much, but really want to involve you. Uh, I'm Jack A. Bear. I'm the founder and president of the Coal Climate Housing <coughs> Research Center. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Research Center. I don't need to tell you too much about it, but we were, we were formed in Alaska by Alaskans to address our problems in applied research. And of course, those problems include a lot of things that were discussed today and, and really a lot of elements that rural Alaska is probably facing more acutely than anywhere else. One of our programs at the Coal Climate Housing Research Center is called Sustainable Northern Communities. And that program is based on uh, the premise that we need to look at indigenous wisdom and 21st century technologies and blend those. That we really need to look at the successes that people that have lived here for 10,000 years have exhibited and then those of us that have come later and the technology that's being developed to examine that to listen to each other, uh, to ask before we start dictating, to ask the people that know what the needs are. Uh, and this panel is really kind of about that. It's kind of about those basic needs. And they're not the basic needs for the next year or the next two years, but they're, they're the needs we're going to have for the next thousand years, the next 2,000 years. And they're basically wrapped around food, water, and shelter. Uh, I was at a conference last week uh, and a young woman from Kotzebue was talking about a bumper sticker she wanted to make, which I really liked, on this theme that we have to look way out, not just right now. And the, the bumper sticker said, the most important oil in the world, whale, seal, fish. And those are really the basis of tomorrow. We need the economics, we need the systems, we need, I don't want to live in a cave, that's where my people lived when the people of Alaska came over here, the first people. Uh, I don't want to go back to a cave. People don't want to go back to the past, but there are some things from our past we need to remember. And that's where the indigenous wisdom piece comes in. And we really are all indigenous people. Uh, we're not indigenous people of this place. We came late. We need to respect the people that were here, but we're all indigenous people. We all come from farmers and people from the earth and that understand that we have to take care of our water and the land and, and we have to take care of our food and we have to take care of each other. It all has to do with sustainability and the future. So I've got a wonderful panel here and it actually is gonna lead off with a, a, a great young Alaskan. Um, well, actually, no, we're going to start off with a little older Alaskan. <laughs> that was sound pretty yeah. good. Yeah. I like the way that In order. <laughs> so, uh, Danny Constantine uh, is uh, director of, uh, or assistant director of agriculture, uh, works for U.S. Department of Agriculture. He understands food, the importance of food security, and how food plays into not just a basic need, but uh, without taking care of that food source and looking at it, we're really not going to be taking care of ourselves. We really don't have a future. So Danny's going to uh, lead us off here. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Jack. Let me see if I can figure out the... Uh, uh, yours is... There. Oops. Just click on that one. 
Okay, so let's see. Is this can also go down a little right. See youth. See youth, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna stay seated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so, all right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Let me let me just introduce myself again. I'm the state executive, Danny Constantine. I'm the state executive director for the Alaska's Farm Service Agency, which is one of the many many agencies within the Department of Agriculture. And I, I work a lot with farmers and people who are growing things all around the state. And um, as I do this, I've really seen what is facing Alaska here with our, our food system and how, where we get our food and um, what the implications of that are for our communities. And so we, we wanted to talk today about how to kind of start to connect the dots here between energy and the things that we all need. Um, and uh, you know, as Jack said, we're not just producing energy just for the sake of producing energy. We're producing energy so that we can help supply the things we need, food, and water, and, and shelter. And so I wanted to, to kind of talk about um, our communities and how we can think about healthy communities um, and what role energy plays in making a healthy community. So to, to start with, I just thought, well, let's talk about what is a healthy community how, will, how do we know? Are our communities healthy? And these are just a few possible criteria for how you might determine whether we have a healthy, are we healthy uh, in terms of you know, disease and things? Um, are we, do we feel secure about the food? Our food supply, do we have enough food? Are we feeling like if the planes stop flying or something happens, will we have enough food to feed ourselves? Um, and then, do we have jobs? You know, we can't have a healthy community without people working. So um, I wanted to talk first about the, the, the health part. So you know, you can look at some diseases and you know, how our, our communities rank in terms of some of these things like obesity, diabetes, alcoholism. Are, are these things related to the food we eat? Well, probably. Uh, there are probably lots of other factors, but the, the food we eat probably has a lot to do with it. And obesity, for example, obesity, the Centers for Disease Control now calls it an epidemic. Um, it, it used to be that smoking was the biggest national public health problem that we were trying to solve, but now it's obesity. It, and um, so Alaska has a lot of those problems, and here's just a few of Alaska's statistics about that, you know, 66 percent of Alaskan adults are either overweight, which is one category, or obese, which is a different category. We put the two together, 66 percent of us are not particularly healthy. Um, and it's even worse in rural areas. So uh, obesity, uh, percentage of Alaskans that are obese in rural areas is even higher. Um, you know, so these are the numbers. Um, diabetes increasing by 48 um, percent. That doesn't sound good. Um, what are they eating? Okay, so are they eating enough fruits and vegetables? No. Um, what are they drinking? Um, Sugar-sweetened beverages? Uh, yeah, quite a bit of that gets uh, drunk in our in our in our in our communities. 
So yeah, here's some more quick stats. You know, so how are people dying? <clears throat> well, cancer is something we're gonna have to take a look at. Heart disease, is that related to food? You know, how many of these things are kind of related to the food that we're eating? Um, probably quite a few. Um, here's an interesting one. Um, what are we eating in our villages? Number one food consumed in the interior villages. Number one, tang. So then you wonder, well, okay, why are we having, are we having these food-related diseases, diabetes, obesity? Um, we, we have some problems. So um, I just wanted to introduce this concept of a food system, which is the way we think about this. It's um, our, we live in the system, and we're gonna talk more about it with the rest of the panel, about you know, food kind of comes in and then it goes out. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, so people talk about food systems, we also talk about them as like a food shed. Where do we all get, we get our food in this one area, kind of like a watershed. Um, or look at the food cycle. Um, this is another way of kind of looking at that food system, you know, starts with producing the food and we process it, distribute it, eat it, and then it goes into the waste. Part. And there's other parts kind of around the food system that help influence, um, and they're a part of this food system, education, transportation, safety is a part of it, security, policies, what do we do? Are there things that we can do to improve our food system? Anyway, just wanted to kind of introduce that idea. And so Alaska, we have a food system. Right? What is our food system? What does it look like? What does our food system look like? And I mean, this is one picture of how it looks like in the Matanuska Valley. We've got some farms out there, and that looks pretty good. We've got food on the shelves and fresh vegetables. That's how it looks in some part of the state. But even that, um, the Alaska food system, um, you know, back in 55, um, of all the food that we were eating in Alaska, 55% of that food actually was produced here in Alaska. But today, uh, it's less than 5%. Less than 5% of the food we eat actually comes from Alaska. Food costs are higher. Um, so, you know, we say, well, what's the picture? If you could draw a picture of our food system, the way I see it, it's like, well, airplanes coming in, dropping off the food, barges coming up, trucks, that's our food system. Bringing up all this food from the lower 48. That's what our food system looks like. Um, so how does it look like in rural Alaska? A little bit different. Um, you know, 20% of our population lives in rural area, and there's a, a bit more, you know, subsistence. Um, but even there, 100% um, of the people in our rural areas do depend on food coming from outside for at least part of the year. And there's connections. It's not just rural and urban, but we're all kind of connected, you know. Um, and I think we all know that, the connections. So, yeah, so that's the rural. If I could say, here's a picture of what is our rural food system looks like, that's what it looks like. Right? Who's seen that before? That's our food system. Comes on bypass mail. Yeah. yeah. What are we going to do without bypass mail? Something might change. Um, so the, so what, what is our, what's the impact of all this? This food system that looks like this snapshot I just presented. Well, we also have, how are we, you know, again, how are our communities doing? Are we healthy? Are we, are, do we have healthy communities when one in five 
Alaskan kids are hungry. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. Um, and then think about the economy too. Like I said, you know, we need jobs in our communities. And um, right now, you know, actually a lot of people in Alaska work in industries related to food. Right now it's a pretty, actually is a fairly large sector. A lot of it is maybe seafood, but, um, but think about this too. Um, we're consumers of food, we know that. We spend 2.5 billion. Alaskans spend 2.5 billion a year on food. But if 95% if of that food's coming from the lower 48, then we're sending all that money to the lower 48. When we could be keeping that money in our communities and creating jobs. So I think there's real opportunities in this food system to, um, to help, um, help, help keep some of that money in our communities if we were producing more of our food here in Alaska. So, and we're gonna talk more later with the other panelists about jobs and the, the, the importance of having jobs to keep our communities healthy. But this is one way that we can create jobs, I think, in our communities by producing more of our own food. Um, so that's what we're trying to do here, is trying to connect these dots between, this is an energy conference. Why are we talking about food? Well, one easy way to look at it is, when energy prices go up, we have less money to spend on food. So if we're paying high costs, which we are, high costs of energy, we're gonna have less money to spend on food. And we've seen what some of the implications of that are. We don't have money to spend on food. We're not eating food. People are going hungry. Or they're buying pop instead of milk because pop's cheap because you don't have the money. So there are, that's a direct connection between energy and food. Um, the other connection is that if we are going to start producing more of our own food, a lot of food production is dependent on energy. Um, there was a study, uh, Swampsea did a study about putting controlled environment greenhouses in communities uh, in southwest Alaska, and that's what they found. It only really makes sense in communities with stable and low energy prices, but in some places like Kodiak or here in southeast, we've got hydro, got fairly low power uh, prices, we could produce food here. Um, so here's just some things that USDA is doing. I just wanted to mention um, we have helped create the Alaska Food Policy Council. There's a group now here in Alaska where all of the food related, um, whether it's a food bank or a food, an agency or an agency like mine, USDA, Division of Agriculture, um, the DEC who regulates food, all of the sort of stakeholders, farmers, truckers, bankers, processors who are involved in food are all working together now to look at this, this challenge that we have. How are we gonna produce more of our own food? How are we gonna get our communities healthier? So just wanted to mention that. Anybody's interested in kind of um, following the Food Policy Council. Um, we do, my agency does um, loans for farmers to help if you wanted to build a greenhouse in us small community, you want to get into producing more food, we can help you. Um, so there's lots of programs out there to help. Um, so here's just what I wanted to leave you with, just some thoughts. Um, think about food as a part of energy planning. Next time you're, any of you are involved in thinking about energy um, for your communities, um, what about this integrated resource plan we just heard about in Southeast? Is food a part of that? 
Is that a part of the planning? Probably not. But I, I think it should be as we think about trying to keep our communities sustainable, deal with our energy needs. We should think about why are we doing this and are we, are we going to, as a part of our energy plan, be able to supply our communities with healthy food. And then I think the same thing is true on the project level. You want to, are you building a, uh, a new biomass um, uh, boiler in a school, which they're doing in Toke? Um, they've already built it. Well, how about thinking about building a greenhouse right next to that, where you could use some of that waste heat, produce some food? Think about this at the project level. Um, so I, I, I guess that's just what I wanted to leave you with. The, the last bullet here, just about community gardens, is just a, a, another idea. Is, okay, healthy communities, um, gardens, community gardens are just great ways they bring people together, you share, um, and it's a, another way of kind of support, thinking about food, thinking about healthy communities, um, and thinking about food as part of the glue um, that holds us together. So thank you very much, and I'll pass it up back to Jack and on to our next panelists. Well, that, that was great. Thank, thank you, Danny. Uh, does anyone here eat? Oh, yeah. So, so we got some, all have some that in common. Uh, and we all have to stay warm and dry, and we have to somehow make that all work. And uh, our next speaker, uh, Nathan Soboloff, uh, just hearing his name, you know his roots are deep here, not only in the native culture, but in the Russians, the first invaders, till we came. Uh, but Nathan, uh, actually Nathan's job, official job, is the Renewable Energy Program Manager for Ha'ani, which is part of Sea Alaska. Uh, but I think the real point is, is he has a family here, three small children. He's committed to place, committed to this whole, the whole tenets of sustainability and how it works here. And the piece that he's working on is using local resources and uh, the potentials that are here to ensure that there's a, a healthy tomorrow for Southeast Alaska and hopefully the rest of us. So, Nathan. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I'll start my presentation timer, and uh, that's all right. No problem. Oh, close them all that way. I did that wrong. I have no fear, though. There we go. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you all for uh, showing up. And um, I work for this new subsidiary at Sea Alaska Corporation called Haani, which uh, translated means our land and its tenant is creating sustainable communities um, with the focus of being in, in southeast Alaska and that's really come about that our Sea Alaska Corporation in general has done a lot of uh, business development and investing and making money for our tribal member shareholders outside of the state of Alaska and this is a, uh, a, a focus the effort that should have occurred since the beginning of time, and you know, we're at the 40th anniversary of ANCSA this year, and this is really looking at um, doing projects and trying to create businesses and, and um, operating within our own region to help uh, create and capture some of that wealth that Danny mentioned in, in his last topic. Um, we want to be uh, doing things so that our people can continue living here 
um, since, since the beginning of time. Um, and, you know, in this, in this time of economic uh, uncertainty throughout the, rest of, uh, throughout the rest of the United States, um, we have, our people are, you know, place-based oriented, and when things go bad through the economy throughout the rest of the nation, there are a lot of people in Alaska that migrate back home to where their roots are and where they're from. And the people that live here, you know, this is where we're from, we're not going anywhere. So it's not that we're stuck here, but we, um, this is where we want to be. And so we're trying to, to do something about making it possible so that our children can grow up here, ultimately fall in love here and want to stay here and have opportunities that allow them to continue living here. Um, so one thing that we see uh, rampant throughout rural Alaska is that the high price of energy is what's keeping those jobs and businesses from coming and operating and continuing to operate in our communities. Um, and, you know, so, you know, the second bullet point I already touched on is that our communities are there for a reason and they've been there for many long, long periods of time. And it, it wasn't based on a cash economy. And I've heard Forrest Cole, the uh, um, forest supervisor for the Tongass, say that when he's doing his plan for the Tongass and, and how to manage it for, for the upcoming periods of time is that he looks at school populations as an indicator as to how vibrant a community is. Um, he sees that the communities that are only worth a darn are ones that have good schools, you know, populations that are stable or growing, and that there's a number of these little communities that tend to be outspoken that they're nothing more than a retirement community. And so why bother investing in communities like that that have no future? You know, it's the places that have schools and things like that. And so it all comes down to, you know, energy and employment seem to go hand in hand. And using Southeast Alaska as an example, some of our smallest communities tend to be, um, you know, at least this is a slide for, 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 for another purpose or another thing, but just to show example that the current economic slowdown of, you know, since going on 2008, people are talking about, you know, 10, 10 double-digit unemployment. And some of our communities, and it's represented throughout the rest of Alaska, would be absolutely thrilled if we could have 10, 11% unemployment. Um, and this is just an example of, of, of what we have in, in, in Southeast Alaska. Um, and some of that primary reason for that unemployment is that our pricing of energy is so high. Um, this is a slide, uh, this data is from the Department of Community Economic Development. Um, this is their fuel tracking program. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but they, the state of Alaska publishes it every six months. And uh, up there is a map um, showing the regions and on the side. I've, I've taken all those reports and put them out for time for the price of heating oil. And you can see our current pricing of heating oil you know, is quite high, four and five dollars. Northern is an anomaly because they have uh, some programs in place with the uh, corporations to keep price of fuel low for their um, things, and of course they've got real, real access to it. Um, so, what are we doing about that at Haini and Sea Alaska to try and um, make it so that our dollars that we uh, are so hard earned and fought for are retained within our community and not sent elsewhere? Um, one thing we looked at is that we've got this huge wood fiber resource, and so we decided to convert the Sea Alaska Plaza to a wood pellet fired heating system using technology that exists um, throughout the rest of the world but had not come to Alaska until this point in time. 
Um, so in real briefly, a wood pellet is a densified wood product and it has um, heating unit values that are uh, uh, better than other wood chips and other forest resources, but less than oil. Um, but it's cost effective. Um, using this, this chart right here, you can see that on the upper left is the price of pellets and everything is levelized on a, on a BTU, a thermal unit, compared to the price of heating oil, compared to heating with electricity. And you can see that $300 a ton for pellets is the same as paying $250 a gallon for heating oil. If you recall, we're currently paying $4, $5 a gallon of heating oil. Um, and you know there are real savings to be made in, uh, in heating with, uh, with, with other sources. So it's one possible alternative and example of things we could be doing to make um, life in our communities uh, more, 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 more livable. And, you know, um, the bottom is a picture, as a, as, a, as a chart of how does our, what's our transportation methods for throughout, coming throughout the state of Alaska? And most of this, the state is served by barges. Um, you know, there are a number of communities that have, you know, and this, this isn't all-inclusive, but this was, again, from the Department of Community Economic Development. And so what I'm doing at Sea Alaska is uh, trying to help create this industry for, for wood pellets. And, you know, we're able to move pellets from Washington um, until we're able to, to get pellets here in southeast Alaska made. Um, you could move them, um, cover most of the state by barge. Um, so all of these kinds of things about, um, you know, the, the wood, wood heating industry or um, community health projects and other things like that is all about um, you have to have operate on these economies of scale and use regional coordination to help um, bring that economy of scale to an area because our populations are so small that, um, and so one of the things we're looking at is pellet mill and you want to create a project that brings in, at least for, for heating, a, um, create a really large load that allows other people to piggyback off of for, um, you know, in the case of, of wood pellets. Uh, and, uh, you know, another example of the, the, the health and wellness of our community is we recently had a, a spill at the Sea Alaska Plaza while filling up our, our storage silo. Um, and as usual, it was caused by human error. But because we were using pellets and not oil, there was no harm to the environment. We didn't face any fines in cleaning it up. And we just uh, sweeped them off to the side with a broom. And now imagine, you know, every year when there's breakup on the Yukon, um, you know, ice flows come down, they get jammed up somewhere, and ultimately someone's tank farm gets knocked over or their thing. And if they were going, with heating with pellets or wood or some other local resource that's not petroleum-based, um, you wouldn't see those kinds of things. And you know, what if what if the Exxon Valdez ran aground and it was carrying wood pellets? You know, nothing would happen. Um, so, in creating industries, what I found, and I do a lot of different things at, at Sea Alaska, and some of my, my next slides will show it is. There is the right way to go about bringing an industry to a region, whatever that industry is, and there's a wrong way to do it. And you always want to think about, do a project that will benefit your community and is not just a project that benefits just the owner of that project. Um, and when I talk about that, I'm, I'm specifically thinking of, if you bring in a, a big wood chip system to a school, like the Toke School, which is a fantastic project, 
ask yourself, does bringing this project into our community help, help us? What, how does it allow all of us to transition off of oil? And um, there are things that that project can do that they're looking at doing um, that makes the project more viable. But of course, you can't forget the big picture and not do the project because of saying, well, it's not really going to help the rest of the community. It's very important to do these projects now, to do them today. Um, and you know, so you want to be bringing in and you want to be thinking holistically. And so at, at least for Southeast Alaska, when we were thinking about pellets, we said, you know, we, communities are having a hard time paying their heating, their heating bills. And if we do pellets, there's an opportunity to really do a lot of um, good for, for our communities by transitioning them off of oil. And pellets is one way that allows a lot of different people to piggyback off of the economies of scale that we are trying to create. Um, one other thing that Sea uh, Alaska has done recently is we have, um, we are looking at what are some of these businesses we could bring to, to Alaska um, that are not necessarily a traditional business in any mean of sense, but th using technology to um, allow people to have a job that is compatible with their lifestyle, is low in its energy footprint. Um, and so they came up with this uh, data call center for the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. So they, they insourced five jobs to the community of Cake um, to have this call center. It's a high technology call-in center and uh, it's, it's a fantastic little project and it's just one example of um, a non-traditional business that you could do. We also, uh, in the community of Angoon, two years ago we started a, uh, a, a My Angoon artists project where they were marketing uh, off, off of the internet and you know another example of way to you know using the postal service you could have people working creating goods and services and selling them throughout the rest of throughout the rest of the world um, this is an example of I heard at the wood energy conference of uh, and these pictures are not from it but um, regional coordination is the the guys if you guys remember the uh, uh, the community of Napayamute started a uh, uh, like a firewood program of, of moving things up and down uh, the river to 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 help alleviate these costs. And so there's technologies and little businesses out there that, with some coordination and some regional thinking, um, you know, you, you you probably couldn't bring in a firewood processor to service one community. But if you are on a river or anything like that, then if everyone gets together, you could support one guy's business who is bringing a resource that could lower your cost of heating or, or whatever. I mean, in this case, it would be heating. And it's, it's pretty successful and viable. And these are replicable businesses that, that you could do somewhere else. Um, we've been working on Southeast greenhouses for quite some time. This is a, a perfect example of something that frustrates me, is everyone acknowledges and realizes that um, our cost of food and our availability to have good, healthy food is a problem. Um, but people get bogged down by the details of saying, well, who's going to run it? Who's going to do this? Is the food that we're going to be making, is it even going to be affordable? And is it going to be profitable? And you got to have these projects. They need to come to our communities now. People need to be do it, need, need, to, need to be doing it. And you can't let these little details uh, you can't solve all of your problems on your project. You need to bring them to your communities, and it will it will ultimately work. Um, but you have to start somewhere, and you know there should be a regional growing uh, facility 
in all parts of the state, uh, you know, just as, as Danny touched on. And so regional cooperation and coordination is key. Um, because we don't have the economies of scale that other industries have throughout the rest of North America and the world. And all of us need to share our successes and share our failures, which is a success in its own right. I have a wood gasifier project that we had been studying and we'd been hearing about for you know many years. And I, we finally managed to whittle it down and purchase a gasifier. And it turns out that the technology isn't really ready for prime time deployment, but at least we tested it and tried it. And we were able to share, you know, whether or not the, this thing worked out so, so well for us. So when you're looking at what can you do in your community, you know, you need to see what resources do you have? What have other people done? If there was a business, why did it fail in the past? Um, and what could you do to, to change it? Because so much technology and the way things operate have, have changed over time. And uh, you know, the, uh, well, I'll skid on because I'm running out of time. Okay. Um, this is a chart that I created uh, for, and I call it the, the indicator of community health, which is on the bottom, the x-axis is how stressed out is your community, either economically or jobs or anything. And on the right-hand side, the, the vertical axis is the cost of heating in, in a BTU price. And the blue line is oil and the, uh, the, the red line is what is the, the, the tipping point at which you should switch to wood. And it, 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 I was doing this late last night trying to figure out exactly how to graph it. It should actually be a, a bar with uh, the, a range in it because oil is a hands-off proven technology and heating with an alternative, and I would just use wood here as an example, but the alternatives at this point in time um, are, they do require a little bit of time and effort uh, to, in order to make it work. But the savings are there and they're real um, and you have to balance that. And so what I found is that a community that is having a lot of success with having a, a like a garn boiler, a cordwood stick boiler, they probably have some hardships that they're dealing with because if you're able to find someone to, to tend to a fire, a firebox, you know, two or three times a day, then there's probably a lot of unemployment and the, the alternative of using easy oil is probably not there. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's kind of a, a thing that I've, 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 I've come up with. And, you know, it's, we're coming up on ski season. And if you don't start doing these types of projects this year, you'll only be one year older when you do next time around. And so, you know, the end of my message is we have to do all of these projects. Um, if whether or not they're successful, those kinds of details can work out. But you have to start somewhere. And, you know, our wood pellet boiler project is a success. But the only reason it worked is because we stuck out our necks and broke this whole chicken and the egg kind of discussion that you hear at every single one of these conferences that we've all been attending lately. So someone's got to do it, and you should do it sooner rather than later. Which one is it? Oh, Dan, Danny, Dan, this one. Probably the home button. Well, thank you, Nate. And one year older for him is uh, is not as important as one year older for the rest of us, I guess. But, <laughs> but you know, one of the things about these conferences that I love or or, or 
getting together with all of you is not just the sharing, but to see the energy of the generations that are following us in the, in the level of commitment that they've got in all of this. And it's, it's really encouraging. So our next speaker actually is Dan Bosha, also known as the Red Fox. And uh, he's actually the lead uh, civil engineer for Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. He has many, many years of experience in rural Alaska dealing with water and sewer systems and many of the other components that uh, ANTHC deals with. Uh, more than that, Dan is a great believer in this inclusive process that I talked about earlier, which means involve the community first when you're making decisions. Don't just throw technology at it or don't throw ideas from outside that place, but listen. So now we get to listen to him. There you go, Dan. You can see why it's called the Red Fox. Yeah, I think they got that. <laughs> so, you know, I've been sitting here all week. Let's stand up and stretch a little bit. I'm a tango teacher, you know. I'm not used to people sitting there listening to me talk. People move around when I'm up here. So, you know, I need to Let's get a little stretch a little bit, walk around. <laughs> Bart here can tell you something about my teaching. He's been uh, taking tango lessons from me for the last few <coughs> nights here in Juneau. Highly recommended, he says. So, you know, Ju Juneau and other little towns around the state have little dance communities and uh, fiddle dances, whatever. I think, you know, it's in us. Let's go dance. There's energy in that. So, you know, there's not a lot of energy in sitting down listening to all these guys talk. But, um, <laughs> Has anybody gone on the internet and looked at the TED Talks? Somebody has to. Oh, There's yeah. got to be a couple hands. Okay, I think Danny needs to get on to those TED Talk shows. Can you see it? Yeah, I can see that. You fit. You just fit the mold perfectly. I was dying when you were up here with all the gestures. So we got to nominate Danny to get on TED Talks and talk about food. I think it would be a good topic and they'd be really... Yeah, no, no, the TED Talks channel, okay. I'm talking, Jack, okay. Okay, so Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium used to be the Indian Health Service, water and sewer, a lot of you know about that, so there's not a lot to, as far as introduction. My piece in this panel's puzzle, we tried to, I tried to narrow it down just to sanitation. What is sanitation? Well, for me, that starts with safe, accessible, and attractive water. Now, why do I use those words? Safe is pretty obvious. We don't want to get sick when we drink it. A lot of people stop at safe. They say, you've got to have safe water. Well, what if it's safe, but it doesn't taste good? Are you going to drink it? I'm not going to drink it if it doesn't taste good. When I go to Las Vegas or Chicago and I drink the water, I'm just dying. It tastes horrible. So when you go to some of these communities, you've got great tasting water out of the creek, but after it gets done getting treated sometimes, it doesn't taste that good. And what do people do? They go take a dip out of the creek, and they might get sick because that water is not safe. So that's why attractive means something to me as an engineer. And we, we don't stop at safe. We try to make it attractive. And the other thing, piece of it, is that it has to be accessible. Because if you can't get to the water or it takes too much energy 
to get the water to people to drink or it's just too much hassle, you're not going to drink as much, you're not going to use as much. You're not going to use as much to clean up around the house. You're not going to have as much water to grow plants. And one of the things that I always tell people, I have a lot of house plants in my house. It just makes me really happy. And they say, oh, well, we're not, that's not part of the equation. I can't imagine living in a structure with no plants in it. That, that depresses me. And so, you know, there's other uses. When we talk about how much water do we need, you know, I hear two or three gallons a minute sometimes should do it, and I'm shaking my head going, I'm sorry, I don't think that's enough. That's just skinning too close to the bone. So we have to have water. Safe collection and disposal of human waste. That's kind of a no-brainer. That's Bob's piece of the puzzle here, large part of his puzzle. And he'll go into some innovative ways that we do that. Um, I'll get into a little bit. The amount of energy that it takes to deal with sewage is usually a lot lower than it takes to deal with water. So my piece in the sewage is going to be pretty small in this. And then we also get involved in solid waste. Where do we put our trash? Do we burn it? Do we just throw it out in the dump? Well, it doesn't take that much energy to just haul it out in the dump and it just sits in the dump. So that's kind of where we're at today. Do I like it? No. Do we have bigger problems? In most cases, yes. So trying to get funding for solid waste type projects right now is very difficult because it's competing against projects in communities where they still have honey buckets and self-hauled water with very unsafe systems. So. Solid waste funding is part of the sanitation piece, but it's right now not the highest priority. So talking about water systems, it starts at the water source. Where's the water source? How far from town is it? What kind of a water source? Is it a well? Is it a tundra pond? Is it a lake? In this case, in Eek, it's the Eek River. It's pretty cold. Uh, everybody's bundled up here. It's 20 below in this picture. And we're out there on the ice, and we're pumping water out of the Eek River, and it's only about 1,000 feet into the water plant. So in the relative scheme of things, Eek's water source isn't all that bad. But it's going to take a little bit of energy to get that water to the plant, keep it from freezing. It's 33-degree water. You've got to pump it. If something goes wrong, you've got a transmission line there that's going to be a popsicle in probably eight, nine hours. So we've got to heat the water just to even get it anywhere where we can use. Then from the Eek water source, you send it over to the Golcana water plant across the state. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but we've got, uh, we've got these great big tanks sitting around all over the state, and they're full of water. We've got to keep them from freezing. So there's some energy involved there. Um, do we need the tanks? That's the first question that might come to some people's minds. In some cases, we don't need as much. In some cases, we need more than you'd realize. Um, anybody been to Shishmaref? Where do they get their water? There's no river in Shishmaref. Yes, but they actually get most of their water from a snowmelt reservoir. And we've got snow fences around the reservoir, and they, they, it piles up with snow. I think it's the same in Kivalina, is it not? And several communities around the state, not a lot of them, but several, they just get their water from snowmelt reservoirs because there is no water source. Or the water source is from the river, but you've got to go across the lagoon behind Shishmaref and go pretty far out of your way to actually get that water. So in Shishmaref, 
they've got a water problem because number one, they can't collect enough snow so that when it melts, the water, you know, there's enough water for everybody. And there's a lot of people in Shishmarev. That's not a small place. So sometimes need a lot of water storage tanks, need a water treatment plant where we treat the water and have circulating systems or some sort of delivery system to get to the people. So there's heat involved there. There's energy involved there. We call those things central facilities. So how do we get the water to the people? There's a wide variety of ways. The, the Cadillac way is a fully piped system where everybody just pretty much like here in Juneau can just turn on the faucet, flush the toilet, and they got all the water they need. Um, and in a lot of places in Alaska, I'm here to tell you that that works and it's actually very sustainable. Um, in some places in Alaska, in quite a few places, maybe not. So, you know, you got all these pumps that you got to energize and there's energy efficiency measures that we can do to make these systems as efficient as possible, but still, obviously, there's a, a huge connection to energy. And in fact, you might have heard uh, in a few places today, um, sanitation facilities are, are in some places half or more of the energy consumption in the entire village. Um, I would say in most places, if not all, sanitation type things are a large portion, maybe at least 15 to 20 percent or more in rural communities. So, at ANTHC, we're intimately aware of the energy needs and energy problems and the impacts of our projects that have on energy because, in fact, when we put a project together, often we look at the sustainability of it and the energy costs are killing us, so we've got to go back to the drawing board and come up with a new way to do things. And I'm, I'm really happy to go through that. On the other hand, um, and I can't remember where this is, Anybody recognize this uh, watering point in Koyukuk? I can't remember where it is. I don't remember where we're at. But I don't know. That looks like a self-haul system to me. The guy's got some igloo containers. He's got his ATV. He's uh, using water out of the watering point, and he's going to haul it back to the house. It doesn't look like a community-type system to me. So these systems in some places, you know, we looked down on them 10, 15 years ago because it wasn't fully piped and the people didn't have access to lots of water in this way and the water sloshes around on the way back to the home. People have to go out of the way to get it. And then what do they do with this water when they get to the house? How, do, how does it stay safe inside the house? You kind of lose control of it in, in that way. But this is a very good way to do business in some places. Some people come with their sled and they pull it down the road behind their ATV or the old man in Shishmaref drags it behind on the sled behind his house and he's getting some exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that in some places. So there's a wide variety of ways to get water into people's homes and into people's lives. This slide, I actually don't like it because it doesn't have a picture on it. But this slide kind of, and Jack actually read this, and I said, should I show this? I hate these kind of slides. And he goes, oh, I, I really like this. And I haven't heard or seen anything quite like this, this conference at, to date. This is basically my design process for projects concerning rural Alaska, but this is the way that I design everything, including anything I'm building at the house myself or just the way I do business. So 
the path to energy management. So how are we going to manage all these problems that we're talking about at, at, down here this week? So the first thing is we've got to plan for the future. And like Jack was saying um, and Nathan was saying, that's not a year or two from now. That's, you know, we want to live here. I live in the state for a reason. I'm a newcomer 17, 18 years ago. But I don't see myself going anywhere. I love it up here. So I want to plan for how, how my family eventually could stay here for a long time and all my friends. So this is a community-driven process. And, and I say master plan because I really love master plans. I love going out to the community and sitting down with people and asking them what their problems are, what do you want things to look like in the future, what do you want them to look like today, what do you wish you had, and listen to the elders, listen to the young people, and, and just listen, you know, instead of just talk to people. So I, that, that's the first step in any success in rural communities. I think a lot of us know that, but do we really do it? Sometimes you've got a schedule and a budget and pressure to spend the money by September 30th or it goes away and we end up ramrodding jobs down the community's throats. I've been there and I don't like it and I really hope I don't have to go back there. The next thing that uh, a lot of uh, folks that reviewed this slideshow started out, they said, Corden, you don't have anything about agency coordination. So while you're doing this master plan, what's AVEC doing? Are they building a generator plant on the opposite side of town that you're planning to put your water plant? Or is it so far away from everything that we wouldn't be able to use recovered heat from their diesel generators to power other places? Is the housing community building things way up on the hill above the water storage tank so it's going to take more energy to pump the water up to the homes? Or are they not considering some of the empty lots right in town that can be immediately served with water and sewer with almost no energy cost associated with it? We need to know those things before we start designing. Um, there, there's, there's so many projects going on in these communities. Are we, are, is the greenhouse is the only available lot for the greenhouse in the back 40 and we, it's not, you, can't get, you can't energize it? You've got to put a little Honda generator. Well, that's not going to work. So we've got to coordinate, and I like to say coordinate projects, because it's not agencies. It's people building homes in the community on their own. It's the school districts. It is a lot of the agencies, uh, the projects. We've got to coordinate projects. We've got to visit the community. No dry labs, we like to say. You know, Don't design this thing in Anchorage or Fairbanks and ship it out there and just kind of shove it in. That's not going to work. I got really excited when Brian Hirsch on Tuesday said, that NREL is going to try to coordinate some agencies to go out and spend a week in the communities and try to come up with some immediate long-term solutions to energy problems. And I, I, I haven't met up with him yet, but I want to be on that trip. That's, we've got to get out there in, in the field. I underline this thing of design using fundamentals. I, I, I like to start with a blank sheet of paper. You know, which is another reason why I don't like this. I, there's nowhere for me to design on this sheet. So I don't like overwhelming things with technology. I look back to my old uh, hydraulics professor who had never used a computer and did not use a computer in his life. And he could reduce problems down to really simple terms really quickly. And y you can really get to a solution really quickly if you just kind of get rid of the technology and start understanding the fundamentals. Talk to the elders, talk to the operators in the communities. They're the ones that know what's going to work and what's not going to work. 
and then and then adopt our technology to suit you know those situations in the communities and then let's use technology to model this you know that's where technology comes we don't have to go build it to t to find out if it works or not we've got modeling software especially for water systems i can i can model up a water system in a couple hours and then i can start running a whole bunch of scenarios to arrive at the least energy intensive solution for a given alternative and then i can say that's still too much energy throw it out spend two more hours and model it a different way and run 25 scenarios on that and in a couple of days with some sharp people you can really come up with some good solutions so that's where we should be using technology um, jack has used that in some of his housing projects to to design homes so that there's no snow drift around the house, for instance. There's all kinds of ways to model things. And then, then alternative energy starts coming into me. Once you've got the simplest system that'll take the least amount of energy, now we can talk about alternative energy. Because we've got, now alternative energy could possibly take care of the whole, the whole enchilada. Because we've got it reduced down to nothing. Don't start with the windmill and build a water system around the windmill. That's, that's the wrong approach. That needs to be integrated in after you've arrived at, the, at a solution that'll work, then we can start incorporating different alternative energies. Know the regulations and the codes. I hate rework. A lot of times we have a really good idea and then we find out, well, you're gonna put that line right through a world-class archeology span site. Probably not a good idea. Or EPA has this new reg that you didn't read up about and now your whole project's not gonna work because it's not gonna meet the regs. You know, there's no excuse for that, is my two cents worth. There's just no excuse. As professionals, we need to know the box that we're in and the regulations are there and, and maybe we need to give some feedback to the regs, but we need to know what the regs are. We need to know the codes. I don't know, I, I don't feel like talking too much more, but. When we build it, let's take some pride in what we build. Let's do it right. Um, let's make sure that we commission the thing, go out there and tune everything before we leave town and just hand it to the operator and they have to deal with the mess we left. Train the operators, maintain the equipment, replace the outdated stuff, and remember that we're, we're trying to do health. You know, We're not trying to build monument to ourselves. And basically, I don't have a whole lot else to say because we want to hear what you guys have to say, but. You know, here we are down in the lower left corner. We're turning on a water plant. We're making sure it works before, before uh, we leave town. And that was in Eek. And I haven't been back to Eek, but I understand you can eat off the floor in that water plant. It's just beautiful. The operator's doing a great job. So we need to recreate. We need to go skiing. We need our kids to drink water. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Well, he, he does have a lot to say, and it's actually really important stuff. Um, what we want to do is kind of finish with our great last speaker. You know, we started with food, and then we dealt with water and staying warm and all that. Now we're going to deal with the other end, and that's Bob's job. Uh, so uh, Bob Sagonis has uh, been an engineer in Alaska for 38 years. He's a dear old friend of mine and uh, has some very, very innovative systems that have actually gotten international and national attention, even to the point of exporting his project from Fairbanks to the Northeast. So 
he's, uh, he's one of our own, and he's dealing with a very critical piece of everything, and I think we'll find him really interesting. And then when Bob finishes, we, we really want to answer some questions, but even more important than that, have some interaction with all of you guys. So I'll see if I can make technology work here and not have to use Nate's help. <coughs> I'm a Mac guy. The escape button. Oh, here's, the, here's the, the Mac excuse again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then you're. excuse, Jack. Go ahead. Well, actually, here, yeah, let's see. I don't know, Jack. Okay, they're down here, I think. Nate, help. In oh, it's right there. There, there we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Perfect. I don't think I helped at all, oh, did I? Right. Sit down, Jack. Oh, okay, all right. Your mere presence, Jack, sets us all at ease. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Where's my tool belt? All right. <laughs> Take it up on your idea here. Keep me on track. All right. Good morning. Yes, if you're alive, you're generating wastewater. And uh, give it to us. We can take it. We take it from everybody, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, I would, I wanted to start off by, um, Going back to one thing uh, Nathan said there, he said, uh, you know, if you, don't, if you don't start it this year, it's going to be another year before you do. In my case, it's going to be at least another year before you do. Just ask my wife. I've got a lot of projects. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, I, um, Life Water Engineering Company uh, kind of specializes in on-site wastewater treatment. We also do a little bit in water, drinking water treatment. We work with another company called Camp Water Industries in Delta Junction to, to do uh, small scale and large scale uh, drinking water treatment. By small scale, uh, I'm just going to mention drinking water for a second here and then I'm going to get into wastewater the rest of the time. Um, but uh, small scale can be anything from just a little unit such as this, you know, uh, a couple of feet cubed. Uh, that can treat water for a camp of 20 people or something like that, or it can go overseas. Uh, John actually has manufacturing facilities, and he does lots of volunteer work overseas in Africa and South America, etc., and uh, actually manufactures them over there for those people. But um, I got into uh, wastewater treatment um, long ago, back in the pipeline days, and um, we in the interior, where I'm from Fairbanks, and uh, we have permafrost to deal with, and so what you're going to see is, is a system that works on permafrost. Now, a few facts here to begin with. Uh, anytime you want to take dirty water and make it clean, you're going to have to put some energy into it. I mean, uh, that's, that's just the way it works. And uh, the reason we have good drinking water is because the sun evaporates the ocean and, you know, brings it up. We have the water cycle or whatever, and that cleans up the water. Well. In, in our case, when, we, when we're doing it in, in a community or in a home or something like that, we're going to put in uh, electricity. We have to use electricity to uh, clean up the wastewater, uh, unless you're going to do something like an outhouse. And uh, actually, there's, there's an interesting study, which I'm not going to get into at all today because I only have about 10 minutes. But toilets, actually, there are lots of different toilets. There are more toilets than you could ever imagine, and there's a whole section on that. But um, when you try to, to, when you go to what we call sustainable type technology, you know, you start thinking about things that use very little energy, right? That's a good goal. But I'll tell you what, it's a lot more hands-on 
than hands-off. And that's another thing that, that uh, Nathan mentioned uh, with the wood pellets, you know. Uh, there's more hands-on than there is with oil. Uh, things are not quite as automatic, maybe. Uh, and it's the same thing when you're treating wastewater. If you want to treat gray water, people think, well, I'll just uh, use an outhouse and treat gray water. Well, that's a lot more hands-on and in human involvement than it is to treat sewage, okay? So just some things to keep in mind. So our goal is to protect public health. Uh, and there's, there's generally when you're dealing with wastewater, there's two ways to do it. You can collect all the wastewater and, and treat it in a centralized treatment plant, or you can treat it more on-site, either on-site from each building where it's coming from, or you can have a cluster of homes, say a subdivision or something like that, one part of town, part of a village. And, um, you know, ANTHC and Village Safe Water tend to collect it and treat They also do some on-site stuff, too, so this is a generalization. But they tend to collect it. And, and my company, we tend to think of it on-site. And uh, uh, it's a bit, uh, from an energy standpoint, it's a bit more uh, energy efficient to do it on-site. You don't have to transport it, keep it warm all that distance. But it does involve maybe a bit more uh, hands-on sort of thing. Now, when, when we got started in this, we um, uh, designed a system that would work above ground, because in permafrost, you don't want to put any heat into the ground. So we wanted a system that was totally above ground, did not need a leach field, no buried tanks, what have you, and worked at 60 below zero. Well, praise the Lord, uh, prayed for wisdom, God gave it, came up with a system. So here is just a little schematic that shows a drinking water tank in the house, uh, the blue tank, and the sewage treatment plant outside uh, on, above the ground. And the discharge pipe goes out on top of the ground. Now, uh, in consultation with my good friend Jack here, Jack said, well, Bob, if we have the treatment plant outside, we have to heat it. Yeah, we do, that's right. And we super insulate the tank and that sort of thing. But to make it more energy efficient for these houses that, uh, that cold climate housing is designing for many of the Alaskan villages, um, Jack suggested, let's bring that thing indoors. The, the drinking water is delivered and the tank is indoors, so the water warms up to basically room temperature. And if you just keep it warm inside the house and treat it there, uh, you don't have to insulate and heat your tank and everything, and you save energy. So that's what we did. So we brought the treatment plant indoors. Now, if you're going to do that, I mean, some people think that's kind of yucky, you know, a little bit, little bit too much for me. But um, you have to seal the tank completely. So you don't want any vapors to come out into the home. So uh, we've done that, and uh, you'll see uh, uh, this, is, this is how, I'll show you more about that uh, in a minute here. This is the original design, and it's, an, it's an, a system that sits, again, uh, well, actually, I've got a pointer here. Uh, this would be the ground surface, this heavy black line, and so it's a super insulated tank uh, sitting on top of the ground. And in this case, um, and, and this doesn't show any foundation details, there's a little bit of, uh, of stuff that has to happen there, but a thermosiphon, like what Alieska used on the, uh, uses on the oil pipeline to take heat out of the ground, a one-way passive heat pump taking heat out of the ground. We use those sometimes to, uh, underneath the treatment plant diagonally, to whatever heat comes out of the bottom, it takes that heat out of the ground. Keep the ground frozen, okay? So a simple three compartment tank, uh, anaerobic treatment in the first chamber, aerobic treatment in the second chamber, 
uh, ultraviolet light to disin for disinfection, and then either an automatic dosing siphon or an effluent pump. Because the key here is if you're going to discharge wastewater, if you're dealing with water above ground in the winter, you cannot let it trickle out. It will freeze, right? So we have, we provide another compartment, a third compartment uh, that just stores the clean water until either the pump comes on or the dosing siphon discharges, and then it goes out a dose of warm water on top of the ground, and it doesn't freeze. It, it works actually a lot better than uh, I originally calculated or thought it would. So these, um, <clears throat> there's no existing tank that I could find that met my criteria in terms of size and strength and, and et cetera, et cetera. So we build our own tanks. So these are, they're black plastic. Uh, the reason they're black is they have carbon in, in them uh, for ultraviolet protection from, so they don't degrade because they're sitting out in the sun. And um, they are a double wall tank and they're all welded together and it's kind of, it's a neat uh, material to work with because it's kind of like steel. You can do anything you want with it. And uh, there is a system ready to be delivered, a super insulated system. And uh, there's the thermosiphon uh, that's bent. The, we buy those from Anchorage, uh, uh, Arctic Foundations in Anchorage. And we discharge on top of the ground. The best place to discharge is in areas of undisturbed natural vegetation. You don't want to go in a lawn. You want to go in the forest floor. In the interior, it's a black spruce forest, or it might be a, a tundra tussock bog or something like that. Down here, it might be a peat bog. Anyway, some natural undisturbed vegetation. And here's what happens. It, uh, undisturbed vegetation absorbs moisture really well. A good thing around here with all the moisture. Um, and the, the plants uh, love nitrogen. And especially in many parts of Alaska, our kind of growth is nutrient limited. So you put some a little more uh, nitrogen out there, micronutrients, and the plants, they, they fix that nitrogen. They love it, they grow a little bit more lush in the area of the discharge, and that's it, no odor. So it's a, minimum, a minimal ground disturbance. The Corps of Engineers likes them because you don't have to tear up your whole yard and put in a, uh, uh, you know, disturb all the wetlands, and you don't have to get permits and all that stuff. You only disturb the footprint of the tank. So here we have um, what I, I use this as an example of kind of a good, good Arctic engineering for an individual home. You've got an insulated gravel pad, you've got a, some sort of a permafrost foundation. This shows a, a triodetic foundation, which is made in Canada. It can also be on pilings or it could be on crib or adjustable posts or whatever. And then uh, the above ground treatment plant and then a, a line going out to a, a surface discharge. Well, you can do it on an individual home, you can do it on a cluster of homes. Uh, you would just si use a larger treatment plant there. Uh, instead of a, a, an individual's home size. And the effluent quality is important. When you're doing something like this, you have to have a good effluent quality. And just most of you are probably not familiar with this, but BOD, biological oxygen demand, uh, this is on a unit that we put in our shop. If you come to Fairbanks, please come by and see us. We'd love to show this to you. We have a sewage treatment plant that has windows in it. Now, for those who are weird like me, you like to see what's going on inside your treatment plant. And not only do we have three windows, but each window has a windshield wiper. 
so that if you get foam in there, you can clean it off. Anyway, we are really weird. But anyway, um, the, uh, so this is at that test unit. And um, BOD, the standard here is generally 30. You want it for, for secondary discharge, you want it under 30. These are all well under 30. Same thing here, 30 is the standard, and here, 200. Uh, it depends on where it's going, but it used to be 200. So we're, we're well within the limits. It's a really good quality effluent. And in terms of cost, okay, this is an energy conference. Now, this is a long story. I don't have time to go into it. As a matter of fact, I've probably already used up my time. But um, when, we, when I started out, did, I've done, been doing this for about 12 years now, and uh, we have over 150 systems around the state. But um, I started buying an aerobic treatment unit from the lower 48, from a manufacturer in the lower 48. It used uh, three times this amount of power, basically. And um, I suggested to the manufacturer that uh, he needed to reduce. It was a great unit, very simple. Um, one thing uh, that Dan pointed out, one of the many things, good things that Dan pointed out is simplicity. And I love that. You said you want to start with a blank sheet of paper. That's exactly what I tell my guys. I say we start with nothing. We only add what we need. Right. We want the ultimate in simplicity for this thing to work. So found this very simple unit. Um, but and over the year, it works really well. But it needs, we need to reduce the power consumption for use in the bush and anywhere. I mean, just makes a good idea to do it. They, they said they were working on it for year after year. They said they were taking care of it. I said, well, let's help you. We've got to get it done. I, you know, we need these things in Alaska. Finally, one year, I said, if you're not going to do it, I have to do it myself. He said, go ahead. So we did. And uh, we teamed up with Coal Climate Housing and with the Denali Commission and uh, did a research and development project over a couple of years, and we got the cost down to about one-third, electrical use to about one-third to a little bit more than one-third of what it was before. So hallelujah. Now we've got something that's, that actually can work on alternative energy. Now, this, this is good. This is good, because here you can uh, treat a four-bedroom home. That the, those are three-bedroom or four-bedroom. And uh, because of DEC regulations, you have to have a bigger system if you have well water than if you haul water. But, it, but watch this. We also found uh, in Alaska, uh, you know, there are many people that don't necessarily care about a flush toilet, but they want to have an indoor toilet and they want to get away from a honey bucket, and, but they don't want to spend, they may not have the money to buy one of our treatment plants because frankly, you know, they cost some money. They're way less money than per household than what Dan is doing, you know, on a big scale, collecting it and treating it. They're way less than that, but they still cost more than uh, many homeowners can afford. So I was looking for a toilet that would work for Alaska, and this is it. We, I found this toilet. It's made in Sweden. We now import these things and sell them here because look at the cost, a dollar per month for electricity to run this toilet. There is no water in this toilet. So if you are going away, uh, you empty, this toilet separates the solids from the liquid. It's not a composting toilet. It's not like anything you've seen. It's a separating toilet. That word separate is Swedish for separating. Anyway, uh, so the solids get dried, desiccated in the tank. There's a little fan, there's a computer fan that vents outside and that's the only electric, uh, electricity needed. Um, it's a 12 volt fan. 
but each system comes with an adapt. We buy one model, and that's a 12-volt model, but it comes with a plug-in for the wall, a transformer for the wall, which is actually European-style plugs, so we have them put in an adapter for the adapter, uh, so it'll plug into our sockets over here. But anyway, this toilet is great. So um, when, you, when you sit down, actually when, when, when you're looking at the toilet, that's what you see. If the lid is up, you don't see poop in there. That's kind of gross, you know. Um, there's a little, there's a, uh, this blue thing is a, a little door that swings out of the way. Just when you sit down, it's kind of cool. You push, when you push down on the seat, the door swings aside and the bucket rotates a little bit. So every time you use the toilet, the bucket is rotating. It's not going to make a pile. You don't even have to get in there and push the pile over. You know, it's pretty cool. Anyway, um, the, I'm told that with two people using the toilet, it's about every four to six weeks you have to empty the solids, okay? And of course, that depends on if you put the paper in there or put the paper separate. But I mean, whatever you want to do it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't need to know. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so these, these things are available and uh, we just, uh, I've had no complaints with these things. We've or we, we ordered them a couple years ago, we sold that order out and now we ordered, we've made another order and, and working with Cold Climate, we just put, uh, sold nine of these things to the community of Crooked Creek and Jack's gonna give me a report on how they like them out there. So anyway, that's, um, that's I think all I had. Oh, the urine, I'm sorry. What do you do with the urine? Because this separates the urine from the solids. The, the urine can be used for fertilizer, as said there. It, the urine is sterile. It's not, the, the pathogens are in the solids, not in the liquid. And so you can, and on, on YouTube you can find this too, but um, this is just a plastic jug and we've got a cam lock fitting here to adapt it and a valve. And this thing you just set on the floor. And the nice thing, which is also the bad thing, is that you can see how much is in it, you know. Some people don't like to see that either, but you can put a blanket over it or something. Anyway, when it, you can see when it gets up there, you just close the valve, disconnect it, go outside and dump it. Uh, either you can, like I say, use it for fertilizer, you can dump it in the woods, you can, whatever you're going to do with it. But, or you can put, if you don't want that, you can put a condensate pump uh, here and pump it. If you have another place to put the jug or whatever, you can pump it out, right? Anyhow, um, we try to do things as simply as possible. There is no next speaker, except Jack is going to handle questions and answers. And uh, that's all I had. I had an incinerator. That was an evil thing. Yeah, I thought that was going to work for beans. No. Why is it that guys always, we never outgrow bathroom humor. We always think it's the most <laughs> hilarious thing there could be. Uh, and thank you, Bob. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, and one of the things we, we really wanted was to make sure that not just questions were answered, but there was a certain amount of dialogue back and forth with all of you. So um, with that in mind, please, questions. And if, and if you have questions or, or want to share some of your experiences, uh, I was directed to, if you could, please go up to the microphone because they're recording all this. So you mind coming up to the microphone? We'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, go for Thank it. Thank you.
Doesn't act like it. Where's our, IT, our wonderful IT person? Is it not on? There she is. Look, our wonderful IT person appeared. She's been there, silently laughing at the bathroom jokes. I've seen her. Well, maybe you can hear me, huh? There, yeah. there you go. Great. The, uh, the gentleman here was saying about, um, and I've seen down a print up there, are those in production made, made out uh, so people can get some? Okay, are you you're referring to the treatment plants or the toilets? Is that what you're, you're asking about the sewage treatment plants? Uh, distribution? Yes. Elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, well, we make those in Fairbanks. And yes, they're in production. And we've, uh, this year we've been very busy. We've been making them as fast as we can. Um, we will, uh, our plan is to make some more. Over the winter, we build up a small stock of systems. And then we build, you know, when we start to deplete that stock, we, we build more. So yes, they are available. And we love to have people come and visit us. Yes, yeah, sir. I would love to have uh, something of that uh, with me, if I can, uh, so I can express it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk after the session here. We can, oh, we can okay. talk more about that. Yeah. Sure. Thank Great. you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. How about some of the costs? Go ahead, Bob, on costs. <laughs> Okay, the costs on the units. The, uh, the smallest one there was the SST, that stands for Sustainable Sewage Treatment, 150, and that's good for a three-bedroom home on, um, on hauled, a hauled water system. That is for, we have an indoor version and we have an outdoor version. Uh, the difference, of course, being uh, the insulation and the, out, the outdoor version has insulation and a, a, a second wall, a second jacket on there. So they're a double wall tank. The in, indoor versions are a single wall tank. But um, so the indoor version is 13,000 and the outdoor version is 16,000 on that smallest unit. Okay, and then it goes on up from there. So, I mean, depending on how many bedrooms in your house and or how many homes you want to put on a cluster and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. What do you with the solids? Right. Um, thank you for asking. Um, the solids can be. Uh, you can put lime in them. I'm, I mean, it's it's kind of equivalent to putting baby diapers out in the landfill or something. But you can put lime in them. DEC wants the pH up to about 12 uh, before it goes into a landfill. So you can put lime in there and then put it in the landfill. Or what I prefer is if you have a wood stove, get a good hot fire going and then just take that bucket. It has a lid and, and I didn't point this out, but this is very easy to open. I mean, you just put your fingers on the front and lift it and it, goes, and it opens and it has two latches there that hold it up. You put the lid on the bucket, you take the bucket over to the wood stove and what I would do is I would line the bucket, um, it's approximately a five-gallon bucket, and then it has a plastic bag in it, which are biodegradable. If, you wanna, if you're organically inclined, you want to compost it, you can compost it 
in the yard somewhere, but not in the toilet. It's not a composting toilet, okay, but you can compost it elsewhere. But I would line the plastic bag with newspaper or a paper sack of some sort, and then go over to the wood stove, just pick up that uh, paper, leave the plastic bag in the plastic bucket, take the paper with the hoop in it and put it in your wood stove. And it burns up, there's no odor, it kills everything, and it's gone. It is so clean, it is so simple. Um, the mayor of Quinnahawk came to our shop and he saw that and he said, he has a honey bucket, he says, I want one of these things in my house, you know? And it's, it's, uh, it's so unlike a honey bucket, uh, it really works well. Oh, the cost. Thank you. Um, the list price is $1,400, and we will mail that by U.S. mail uh, anywhere in Alaska. So that has a post office, all right? So that's at your location, $1,400. Or actually, it might even be $1,350. Yeah, I think it's 1350 And now that comes with, <laughs> it's, that comes, that doesn't have the urine bucket. And we are going to, we're going to put together some packages for that and have that as an option because some people want that and some people don't. But uh, we put in, um, it has basically everything you need to do a standard installation on that toilet, which would be vented out through the wall. But if you want to go up through the roof, and it has the fittings, it has a little bit of pipe, it has the outdoor cap that you put on it, it has a little child seat so that you can, a one-year-old or two-year-old can sit on there and go potty, you know. It's really pretty cute. It's pretty well thought out. Um, but that's all come standard with it. And we put in a little rubber grommet that allows you, this is uh, SDR for those of you who know, it's an SDR 35 pipe. It's a very thin wall, I call it eggshell pipe, uh, because it's just a vent. But we put a, a grommet in there that will adapt that to standard Schedule 40 pipe, three inch Schedule 40 pipe. So if you wanna go up through the roof, uh, we provide the adapter, all you have to do is get the pipe and you get standard, either it could be PVC or it could be ABS, doesn't matter. We'll know a lot more about the performance and how people feel about these toilets uh, by next spring because as Bob said, there's nine of them now that have gone into the rebuild homes in Crooked Creek uh, and they're pretty excited about them, so we'll see how it goes. Anyone else have something to share? Oh, great. Um, another question for Bob. Um, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but uh, the the larger treatment tanks, uh, how are the solids handled in, in that, and are there alternatives for those solids as far as the way they're treated, or can they be composted, et cetera? Okay, that's a very good question. For uh, And some people may not know this, but any sewage treatment system, whether it's a lagoon or a treatment plant or a septic tank that is working properly will accumulate solids. And you have to do something with those solids periodically. And uh, that's always been a problem, uh, what to do. If you're in a village where uh, there is a commercial pumping, a vacuum truck available, or a commercial pumper, you know, in Fairbanks or Anchorage, you just call them up and you come on out and pump out my tank. That is the cheapest, simplest, cleanest way to go. You don't have to get your hands dirty. They get their hands dirty. Um, however, for remote villages where there is no pumper truck, for years we have been uh, working on uh, developing a system for do that. We, we, we've been thinking about it. We haven't been working on it. We've been thinking about it. 
and now we're, we're going to work on it. Uh, next week, I'm going down to California for their uh, California On-Site Wastewater uh, Association. They're having a training workshop on filter bags where you can take your, uh, the, the material in the tank, which is liquids and solids, settled solids, floating solids, whatever it might be, you mix it up and you mix it up by blowing air in there. This is the way I'm planning on doing this. By blowing air in there, stir it up, bubble it, mix it, and then you pump it out, you add some polymer, you run it through a bag, a porous bag, and the solids then uh, stay in the bag, the liquid goes back in the tank. So that's how you would get your solids out. So we're going to be developing units like that that will be, are very portable, that can go out to a village uh, or, you know, if somebody wants to buy it and keep it there, great. If they want to rent it, if they want to just travel, you know, somebody could set up a business traveling around pumping out tanks. That's one way to do it. We have some other things that we do on larger systems, uh, membrane bioreactors and other things like that. Does that answer your question on solids? The solids, uh, you would want to remove them from these little residential systems probably every two to three years, depending on use. If you have many, many people in your house, uh, you're going to need to do it more often. Uh, there's more organic material going in there. There's a faster accumulation of solids. If there's only one or two people, you know, in, in the home of an elder or something like that, it's not very often. One of the things we're going to be doing at the Housing Research Center over the next number of years is what's called the Sustainable Village at UAF. And we're going to be integrating things that each of these speakers talked about in a village setting next to the research center, which will involve demonstrating the systems, the approaches to sustainability, the houses themselves, and they'll be occupied by student researchers. So these kinds of systems will be testing in a little bit easier place than Anaktuvik Pass. So we won't have to be going out there to see what is working and what isn't working. The important thing is, and, and, and I think the important thing about this panel, and to, in a way to kind of leave you with, though we can take some more questions, but is that we have to start taking a holistic approach to these, these pieces. We have to talk to each other. We have to make this all work in a community. We have to redefine in a way the value and the cost of something. Even though something may cost more that's imported, or cost less that's imported, are we better off spending more money on something that's sustainable and works there? What's the, the real economics of all that? And that's something we're going to be working on in this village as well. But every piece, food, water, shelter, we've got to deal with. The water we drink, how we handle wastewater, how we stay warm, what energy sources we have, and how we can grow food there. Uh, so something for all of us to think about in our own communities, uh, how much energy that takes, how we can make it work. Because the energy is working for us. We're not working for the energy. We need to decide what we need the energy for. We need to do that wisely and then produce the energy to meet those needs is what we need to do. Any more questions? No? Well, it is lunchtime. Thank you all so much and thank my amazing speakers.